The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, what a what a humbling thing to come before you after singing a song like that. Holy, holy, holy. That we are able to come before you in our prayers, in our worship, before the triune God. There aren't words just to express just the, the awe of that. I pray, Father, as we come before your word. that we would remember that it is your word. You have communicated to us who you are, the riches of your grace and mercy, the wonder of your judgment. the redemption that is ours through Christ. You have communicated all these things through your word. Help us now just to come humbly before it as we consider a small portion of your word today. Help us to be a people who uh, just stand in awe of your love for us. Help us just to see that clearly today in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As, as Brennan read the scripture this morning, you, you, hear, you hear that and you maybe think, what, what have I come into? That was a downer of a passage. Where's the joy in that? Shouldn't I be kind of, shouldn't I come to church and have my spirits lifted up? Can't we just avoid some of those passages that seem a little dark and depressing? Well, we're going to be looking, if you want to find your way to John chapter 5 this morning. Those passages are dark and depressing. If... We don't view them through the lens of our need for a redeemer. The passage made me think of our, our Exodus study that we somewhat recently had gone through. In Exodus chapter 2, the, the, the people of God had been in, in Egypt and slavery And there's one couple verses that are just amazing. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God 
new. Like so many times in our lives, we are at this place of groaning, of despair, questions. And it is comforting to know the God that we serve is a God who knows each and every care and concern and question we have. The God that has loved us is the God who redeems us. And we get, we get to celebrate his redemption. But as we, as we look at his word, we, we have to remember this, this picture of redemption that he has given us, that we realize that we are in desperate need of a savior. And there's not any point in that history where we can say, oh, yes, humanity arrived and we are no longer in need of a savior. No, we continue to this very day desperately in need of a redeemer. That's, we'll see this in our, our passage this morning in John 5. I want to I take a, a bit of an introduction just to kind of get us up to speed and remembering the full kind of scope and sequence of, of John's gospel. So we think about why did John write his gospel? Well, in, in John chapter 20, we have a good a thesis statement. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This whole gospel that John has written, and as John will argue today, the whole text of Scripture is written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he is the Redeemer, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Beliefs, belief is a major theme in John's gospel. And again, it's specifically belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We've seen this already just a few examples uh, for us that we've seen so far. In chapter one, John the Baptist came, it says, that all might believe through him. And in verses 11 through 13, it says, he came to his own, this is of Christ, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In chapter 2, at the, the wedding at Cana, where we saw Jesus turn the water into wine, John writes for us in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Then continuing on in chapter 2, we saw Jesus come in and wreak havoc at the temple. What we refer to Jesus is cleansing the temple. He was turning over the tables of the money changers. He was chasing out the animals. And he said, as the leaders asked for a sign, really asking the deeper question is, kind of by what authority are you doing these things? They asked for a sign and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then in, in verse 21, John writes, this is of chapter two, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then as we moved on into chapter three, we saw the, our, the familiar conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, who, who was a Pharisee. And the whole, the whole conversation there is really about belief. We are, of course, very familiar with John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Moving on into chapter four, we, we saw Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman. In the passage there in verse 39, as the woman talked with Jesus and then the woman went and talked with her neighbors and the neighbors came to Jesus, Verse 39 says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Her testimony was this, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the savior of the world. Then Jesus healed an official son. And you remember the story there is Jesus sent the official on his way saying his son would be healed. The servant came running and met the official on the road and said, your son has been healed. And the first question the official asks, like, what was the time? And when he hears the time, he knows that's exactly when Jesus said that my son would be healed. And it records to us that he believed along with his household. And then it's interesting as we turn to chapter five and we see another healing. And this is the healing that Jesus does at the, the pool of Bethesda where the lame man who wanted to get down to the waters for healing and, and Jesus heals him. And what's interesting about that passage is belief is kind of noticeably omitted there. The man's healed. And Jesus and the man kind of go their way. And this kind of sets up this whole passage that we're in right now in John chapter 5. Because as the man went along carrying his pallet, the Jewish religious officials stopped him because it was the Sabbath. They said, what are you doing breaking the Sabbath, carrying your pallet? And the man says, well, it's not really my fault. Someone healed me. 
So they were looking for Jesus and Jesus met the man again. And again, there's no record there of the man believing. It just says that Jesus or that the man left and went and told the, the Jewish officials that it was Jesus who had healed him. So we see now this argument being laid out by Jesus. It's really an argument about his authority. By what right does he have to do these things? As Ryan pointed out a couple of weeks ago, we, we see the, the use of legal language kind of being employed in this, in this text. Jesus is laying out an argument. And it's argument about very specific charges. In chapter 5, verse 18, John clues us into what the charges are that were being brought against Jesus. It says, this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Just a side note, I've heard so many times people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Like, well, I don't know what scripture you're reading, but he did. And his audience certainly understood what he was saying. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now these charges are serious charges because both of these, breaking the Sabbath and what they would classify as blasphemy, were capital offenses. If you broke these, you're, you should be put to death. The Jewish authorities were, were seeking to kill Jesus based on the law given by God to Moses. And then in verse 19, Jesus began to lay out an argument about his authority, kind of laying out this defense, if you will, establishing his authority for his actions and his words. And today we're going to pick back up in the middle of Jesus's defense at verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Let me read that for us now, and then we'll, we'll discuss it. So John chapter 5, verse 30. This is the word of God to us. And Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the witness that he bears about me is true. It's speaking of the Father. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, 
bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So as Jesus' defense continues, he, in today's passage, calls his witnesses, as it were. He calls his witnesses to his defense. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the need for witnesses? Why is there a need for witnesses? This is, this is the son of God. Jesus' testimony is, of course, true. And that means the evidence would then support him. But he didn't need to lay out his case. That's why we see in verse 34, he says, I say these things so that you may be saved. This is, the, this is the history of redemption that we are given in scriptures. God condescending to us to give us his, his written word. To what end? Well, as John's whole argument of his letter, of his gospel is the end of belief that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus here, though he is the son of God and does not need to call, for, call his witnesses to his defense. He lays out his defense to these witnesses in order that they, and I would say we, might be saved. C.S. Lewis, his, some of his writing is famously kind of wrapped up in, in the phrase that Jesus must either be a liar a lunatic, or Lord. We can't simply say that Jesus was a good teacher. Because of his very clear claims that we have already seen and that the people understood, he is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, a crazy man, or he is who he said he was, who he said he is, Lord the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus begins to lay out his, his witnesses for his defense. And he calls his first witness, John the Baptist. In chapter one, 
We were first introduced to John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, John uses the same, the same language. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And Jesus makes it very clear to the religious leaders their failings in how they viewed this first witness because he says, you sent to John. You're, you yourselves saw what was happening in the ministry of John the Baptist. You saw the crowds gathering. You saw and felt the excitement. You were in the, the glow of, of his light, as Jesus says here. So you yourselves recognized what was going on with John the Baptist and you sent to him. They went to John and they asked him, who are you? And John knew exactly what they were asking. John knew that the question they were asking is, are you the long-awaited Messiah? Are you the Christ? Because when the religious leaders ask him, who are you? John replies, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. But what was John's witness to them? Chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John. And John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus says in regard to this first witness, witness number one, you ran out to John and you sought to find out if he was the Messiah. And when he told you plainly that he was not the Messiah, he plainly pointed to me as the Messiah. He says you were, in essence, Christ is saying you were eager to hear John's witness. You were eager to hear John's testimony, but you just as quickly rejected it. So then Jesus brings forward witness number two. Witness number two, his works. Jesus says this is a greater witness than John's witness. He says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now there's a couple ways 
to view this. And I, I think we are meant to view it in both a narrow and kind of a broad way. First, kind of the, the narrow view is the signs, the, the miracles that Jesus had done. Throughout scripture, we see miracles being used by God to show who his messengers were, to validate their message, to authenticate the messenger. So Jesus says, I, you've seen my works, you've seen my miracles. Even in another passage is John the Baptist sends messengers as even John is wondering, is this really the Messiah? And John sends his messengers to Jesus and Jesus says, the lame walk, the blind see. Who do you think I am? But more broadly, Jesus is here under the authority of the Father to accomplish a mission. Matthew 5, 17, Christ says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says in Luke 19, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Matthew 20, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This witness of his works, the, the works that the Father gave him to accomplish, they're, they're building toward his final witness. So he lays, he lays out his first two witnesses, John the Baptist, not the Messiah, but he pointed to me. My works, authenticating that I'm the messenger. Witness number three, the Father, verses 37, 38, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. Think about this before I read these verses. Think about the audience that he is speaking to. The religious leaders. These are the people who would think themselves the closest to God. These are the people that society would think those are the people who are the closest to God. And yet, listen to what Jesus says. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What incredible offense to these religious leaders. How in the world could you possibly say that we have never heard his voice, seen his form, that we don't abide in his word? We are in his word all the time. Right now they're thinking Jesus falls into the category of lunatic what in the world could you possibly mean by saying these things against us? You 
You didn't believe John when John pointed to me. You don't believe my works, even though all of Scripture points to the Father using works and the mission to authenticate his messenger. Because of that, you don't even know the Father. You've not, you're not listening to his voice. And this bleeds directly into witness number four. Witness number four of the scriptures. Look with me again at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They searched the scriptures more than any other people at that time. This is kind of what they're known for. Being, being the authorities of scripture. They took pride in being in scripture all the time to know it. They took great care for the scribes as they would copy scripture. They took an enormous amount of care in just how they, they uh, copied scripture. Christ says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. They searched the scriptures and yet they missed the entire point of the scriptures. They held firmly to what they read in scriptures as a form of justification before God. If we keep these, if we keep these laws, we can be justified. We can have eternal life by keeping the works of the law. But what did they miss? As we saw in just that cry for help out of the Psalms this morning and the cry from the people of Israel in Egypt, they missed the whole point that we all are in desperate need of a savior. We are all in desperate need of a redeemer. No one can keep the law. And therefore, we, we need a redeemer who could keep the law on our account. We need a redeemer who could fulfill all righteousness. We need a redeemer who would be that lamb of God who would lay his life down. They missed it. They missed the entire point of scripture. They missed that the law itself pointed to the need of a savior. Eternal life is never meant to be found in the law Eternal life is meant to be found in the Savior who would perfectly keep the law, the Savior would, who would fulfill the law's demands. 
We, we have a taste of this in other passages where Christ looks back and um, shows that the, the whole of Scripture is about him. You think of, the, of Christ appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and they're, they're down. They, they, are, they are feeling extremely depressed because the man they thought was the Messiah had been crucified. They saw him die and laid in the tomb. And Christ says to them, are you so f- foolish not to believe all that the scriptures have foretold that the Messiah must suffer and die? And it says that he began to walk through scriptures with them to show them how the scriptures pointed to him. Hebrews 1, 1 Peter 1, talks about the prophets pointing to Christ. How, we have to ask, how could a people who are so steeped in Scripture, who spend so much of their time in the Word, how could they come away not seeing Christ. Christ gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 42, he says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. We see in so much of Christ's teaching and his rebuke of, of the religious leaders that what they, what they were after, this passion for scripture wasn't born out of a love of God. It wasn't born out of a seeking to, uh, to glorify God, but it was born out of a, a passion and desire to glorify themselves. Christ calls them many times hypocrites. He says that they did their work to be noticed by others. Quite frankly, that's, kind of who we are anytime that we think that we can be justified before God by our works. Because if we think that we can be justified, that we can be made right or declared right with God on the basis of our own works, well, when you arrive there, then you're going to think you're pretty good. And the only way to really arrive there is by comparison. You compare yourself with the people around you. I'm better than that person. I keep the law better because we know we can't keep the law perfectly. So all you can hope for is that you keep it better than someone else. They miss the entire point of Scripture because... At the heart of the matter, they didn't have a love for God. They were seeking their own glory. 
not his. And then what is probably maybe the most offensive part of Christ's defense here. He does something quite dramatic. This is kind of in, if you're watching a courtroom drama, where all of a sudden a surprise witness is brought in. The defense is shocked. <gasps> Quiet falls in the courtroom as this person comes forward to give their, their testimony. But Christ says something else. He says, I don't have to accuse you. The very person who accuses you, because actually you're the one on defense here, let me reveal who the, the prosecutor is, who the person bringing the accusation against you is. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. If there's any sacred cow not to touch with the religious leaders of Jesus's day, it was Moses. He, Jesus can talk about John the Baptist. He can, in their mind, blaspheme by invoking the name of God the Father and the scriptures. But Moses, Moses is our guy. You can't bring Moses into this argument. As Christ says, the very one that you have set your hope on is the one who accuses you. 4, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how Will you believe my words? This reminds me of Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. As both men die and the rich man looks over and sees Lazarus and Lazarus uh, the bosom of Abraham. And his final plea is, okay, you, you can't help me out where I'm at. Send Lazarus to my brothers and warn them. And Abraham's response to the rich man in this, this parable that Jesus tells, like if, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's probably no coincidence then that Jesus rose a Lazarus from the dead, but then even more so Jesus himself rose from the dead and the religious leaders sought to cover it up. Their hardness of heart would still not allow them to believe. Jesus laid out his defense. He presented his witnesses and it's very easy for us 
to see something like this and think, oh yeah, those Pharisees, those religious leaders, those Jewish religious leaders, you know, of course they missed it. You know, they were, they were seeking to justify themselves by works of the law. We, we can sometimes get in the habit of talking about the Pharisees, especially, and, and kind of a tone like that, of those silly Pharisees. Folks, we do the exact same thing. We can do exactly what they have done by either seeing scripture and missing Christ or as we'll see here, thinking we see Christ outside of the scriptures. There's, there's a uh, phrase that, I don't know, I don't know if it's still as popular as it now as it was when I was a kid, but you know, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Folks, it's a religion and it's a relationship. It's both. You see, the, the issue that the, the religious leaders had wasn't that they spent too much time in the, in the scriptures. Christ didn't say, oh, you silly Pharisees, you silly scribes, you spend too much time in my father's word. The point was, in all the time that they spent in his word, they completely missed Christ. It wasn't that they spent too much time searching the scriptures. It wasn't that they spent too much time striving to obey God's commands. But they just missed the entire heart of the word of God in Christ. John Calvin wrote in his commentary on this passage, he says, if we wish to obtain the knowledge of Christ, we must seek it where? In the scriptures. If we wish to obtain the knowledge of Christ, we must seek it from the scriptures. For they who imagine whatever they choose concerning Christ will ultimately have nothing instead of him but a shadowy phantom. First then, Calvin says, we ought to believe that Christ cannot be properly known in any other way than from the scriptures. And if it be so, it follows that we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. So you see, the, what could be misconstrued in a phrase like, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, is you might find yourself in a place of thinking, I've got, I've got Christ, right? It's, he, he died for me, right? but I don't, I don't need all the formality around Christ that you know, the, the church tries to bring into that. The scriptures are well and good, but I don't need to study them. I don't need to read my Bible. 
I don't need to be part of the church. I don't need to partake in what we would call in our church the ordinary means of grace. I've got Christ. That's just religion. What Jesus is saying here, we can, we can extrapolate from it, understand these principles, is that you can't know Christ apart from the scriptures. And then if you are reading the scriptures and not finding Christ, you are missing the entire point. John wrote again in 1 John. And it's interesting, you know, we, we hear the various summaries of the law of God, the, the summary of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourselves. Well, John gives an interesting summary. John 3 19, he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Religious worship or religion that the religious leaders of, the, of Jesus' day had. They had that religious worship without Christ. And when you have religion without Christ, you do not have true faith. But I would also say that true faith in Christ will produce religious worship. It will produce a piety in us where we are striving not for justification, but striving in the graces of God to enjoy him and glorify him. This is what was lacking with the religious leaders of the day. They had no love for God. They claimed to love God, but if they love God, they would see Christ in the scriptures. As we, as we come to communion this morning and we celebrate Christ's death until he comes again, let's remember that the reason we celebrate Christ, the reason we know anything about Christ is because of the word of God. It's his scriptures handed down to us that we can even know Christ. And there is a depth 
of knowing Christ to be found that we find in the scriptures that just beyond anything we could ever imagine. And it ought to be our delight to kind of plumb the depths of scripture and as Calvin said, expect to find Christ in it. I, I left my, my Bible open once, uh, just at a location, and someone, someone left a note on it, and I came back and found, found the note on my Bible. And I said, be careful reading this. You might find Christ. Folks, it is good news to, to search the depths of Scripture and not to find in them salvation by works, but to find in them salvation and eternal life by a Savior, by a Redeemer. So when our hearts groan because of whatever we might be going through in life and we call out to God, we don't call out as a people without hope, but we call out with a people who have hope in a redeemer. And we have the promises of God that show us over and over and over and over again that he is faithful. Let's pray and, and we will take communion together. Father, as we do come before uh, your table and celebrate uh, your son's death until he comes again. We rejoice that you have condescended, that you have come down to us in the person and work of your son, the person that you have revealed in your scriptures, that you have promised from the very beginning. We think about Genesis 3.15, and just that the story of redemption of bringing us back from the fall, bringing your enemies into your family. And you accomplished this in a way that only faith in your, in your word can see through the sufferings and death of your son on the cross. He hung on the cross and bore our wrath he bore our shame so that we could be brought into your household to be called your sons and daughters. So I pray as we come before communion this morning that you would just help us to celebrate our Savior and help us to delight and enjoy discovering our Savior, more and more in your word as you have revealed him to us. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.